The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. China would rather this not be the most amazing example of the Belt and Road Initiative in its worst form. And Malaysia would rather not have a big kind of problem with China and, and you know, its nearest biggest trading partner and things like that. So what's happened is they're getting, they're inching closer to some kind of resolution over this whole YMDB thing. And, and what that started with is people that were in China that were part of Zhou circle being booted out. They're no longer getting shelter. And you notice when they get booted out, they often don't say where they came from. You know, because because they're trying to be sensitive to China, not wanting this image of having hosted all these guys and, and women as well. And um, now Joe Lowe is obviously the, the prize at the center of this, and he's the last piece of it. That was Bradley Hope. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with business people, policymakers and experts around the world. He's the man who fooled Wall Street, Hollywood and the world a decade ago. Malaysia's government may be inching closer to agreeing a deal to extract fugitive Joe Lowe from China. Lowe is charged by multiple authorities for his central role in expropriating billions of dollars from 1MDB, a Malaysian sovereign fund. What will the return of the most wanted white-collar criminal on the planet mean for officials, bankers and entertainment stars caught up in this epic corruption case? I'm Yuna Galani, Asia editor of Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm of Reuters. In this episode of The Exchange, I sat down with Bradley Hope, co-author of Billion Dollar Whale, the definitive book on the 1MDB scandal that shook the financial world. He's also co-founder of Project Brazen, an investigative journalism studio. Welcome, Bradley, to The Exchange. Thank you so much. Very nice to be here. Well, look, I am a huge fan of your work. I'm slightly starstruck to have you here. I'm particularly excited to have you here at this moment because it feels like some big loose ends in this huge money laundering scandal might soon be resolved. And and we want to talk about the implications of that. But first, can you remind listeners, what was 1MDB supposed to be and how did it end up triggering investigations from the US to Singapore, toppling Malaysia's government and leaving Goldman Sachs with a $5 billion bill? From the outside, 1MDB was a new sovereign wealth fund in Malaysia that was more in line with some of these other uh, now quite mature sovereign wealth funds like Mubadala in Abu Dhabi or now the Public Investment Fund in Saudi Arabia. It was meant to be a sovereign wealth fund that was much more active, much more present in the world, not a passive savings account, but more of an active investor. And the thing that was a little bit odd about 1MDB was that from the outset, it didn't, it wasn't given a big chunk of money. It was actually borrowing money. And it was borrowing money to invest in things like building a new financial center in Kuala Lumpur or consolidating the oil and gas sector. You know, it had mandates that it was pursuing. But in reality, behind the scenes, 1MDB was created for one purpose only, which was to steal an unbelievable amount of money. And this was orchestrated by a young guy called Joe Lowe, who was a kind of financial advisor to the then um, defense minister who became the prime minister, Najib Razak. And, And what they were doing was looking actively for any deal where they could commit money from this borrowing and then siphon it off in a variety of ways. And they did that through a series of joint venture partnerships with um, other conspirators in the, in the, in the fraud. They, they were people that also received a portion of the stolen money. And Goldman Sachs was one of the key 
institutions that was helping them borrow all that money. And they were, it's now clear, ignoring a lot of red flags. And in fact, one of their top executives was in on the fraud. And so it's really just become, 1MDB has really become the amazing global example of just how big a fraud can become with help from all of the white shoe law firms, investment banks, and and advisors, uh, accountants, you know, everybody kind of turned the, turned the other way while this was happening. And so that's the story. And then now, of course, I'll just add one more thing is what's particularly crazy about 1MDB is it started off as what I just described, but then it became a whole story about um, trying to persuade Donald Trump to drop his investigation and, uh, and, you know, getting money into U.S. politics. And then it became a story about how China was using the Belt and Road Initiative to kind of capture Malaysia. The, the deal was that Malaysia was giving up all kinds of things. Naja was giving up essentially sovereignty. And in exchange, they were getting money through back channels to plug the 1MDB hole. So it's really a story that has a long uh, journey and it's not, not quite over yet. Right. And uh, I mean, the numbers here, right, are seriously crazy. I think, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think half of the $8 billion it raised from bond sales was basically siphoned off between 2009 and 2014. Is that right? Yeah, that's about right. And and the, the other crazy thing about this is that the only money that's been recovered is about a billion dollars worth of assets. That's just luxury homes, planes, yachts, whatever, whatever you can imagine. And the other money is still unaccounted for. Yeah, I mean, the, the funds went everywhere, right? as you said, into the pockets of government officials, purchases of super yacht, and even the financing of, of The Wolf of Wall Street, which is that Leonardo DiCaprio film. I mean, for you, what was the most surprising place that some of this stuff turned up? I mean, of course, when we were first looking at it, it was the kind of crazy parties and spending. And what I always say about 1MDB is it kind of taught me everything I know, because I didn't know you could just buy a celebrity, you know, and things like that. I just didn't know, you know, and I learned all of it from this experience. But I think probably what the craziest thing is, about midway through the scandal, Joe Lowe decided to refashion himself. So initially, he called himself the concierge to other rich people and powerful people. But midway through, he decided, actually, I don't want to be a concierge anymore. I want to be a billionaire. But he couldn't explain why he would have billions of dollars. So he created this whole fictional backstory that his grandfather was a billionaire, a secret billionaire, and he had inherited it. And at that point, Joe Lowe started trying to do some crazy deals of his own. And the one that he almost pulled off was he almost bought Reebok from Adidas. And that was going to be like his major, major deal. And he had a whole list of other deals, term sheets out. He was going to buy 40% of Tom Ford at one point. Um, so many assets, so many global companies, you know, and that's in a way what really hit me the it really struck me the most. Yeah, I, I mean, it's totally unbelievable. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about Jolo? I mean, we hear his name a lot. But who is he really? And how close do you think Malaysia is to bringing him home? So Jolo is a bit of an enigma. You know, the, there's a, a team of screenwriters who are working on a television adaptation. So I've had, had the experience of trying to really understand what drives him. And, and I don't claim to have all the answers. But I think he essentially was, he's a young guy who never really had a real job. And he was obsessed with the idea of being powerful and interesting to other people because of money. And so he was really very focused on money from a very young age and, and giving the impression of being wealthy and can make things happen. And um, my overarching theory about him is that his early deals that he did were all failures and they left him with owing a lot of money to other people. And so that hole was, was behind him and pushing him to try to find more bigger ways of uh, finding money to pay back the other people, almost like a kind of a, a Ponzi scheme. 
And, um, and at the same time, he also just be became addicted to this idea of becoming the, this enigmatic, most powerful person. Everybody in the world wanted to meet Joe Lowe, you know, and that, that includes heads of state, heads of investment banks. Everybody wanted him to be, his, you know, her boyfriend or whatever. So I think he just got addicted to that power. And I don't think he, he like any like any Ponzi schemer, starts off thinking, oh, let's start a Ponzi scheme. It just sort of happens. And then you you make, you make keep making worse mistakes than the last to cover up the previous mistake. And then it just gets out of control. And that's kind of what happened. And at this point, he has to kind of embrace the fact that he's kind of a financial supervillain, I guess. So he went, he ran away to China. He's, he's Malaysian, but of Chinese descent. He ran away to China um, when the when all the investigations started up. And he really worked very hard to make connections there. He wasn't connected in China. He didn't have any really powerful connections, but he he really worked on forging them. And he, he made a lot of offers and promises that he could deliver things to China because of his, you know, at that time he had a pretty big global reach. And so he was initially helping them with things like, uh, they wanted to bring back this guy called Miles Guo. And so he was helping with that. He managed to bribe a DOJ lawyer to go and like do crazy things. It, 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 this, the details of this case could go, take us for a long time. For a time, China China probably looked at Joe Lo as such an amazing asset. He was an intelligence asset. He could make things happen. He could control Malaysia like a puppet master because Najib was so vulnerable because of the stolen money. And um, then at one point, of course, Najib really made a major miscalculation and he managed to get voted out of office. You know, usually if you're a kind of budding dictator, you, you you do things like stack the votes or whatever, whatever you, or do something else corrupt. But he actually was voted out by a functioning democracy and everything started falling apart. And Joe Lo went from intelligence asset to an intelligence liability because he knows so much about what's been going on in the steals. And then as time has passed, it's clear that this whole saga is an obstacle between China-Malaysia relations. And China would rather this not be the most amazing example of the Belt road initiative in its worst form and malaysia would rather not have a big kind of problem with china and and you know its nearest biggest trading partner and things like that so what's happened is they're getting they're inching closer to some kind of resolution over this whole OneDB thing and, and what that started with is people that were in china that were part of jolo's circle being booted out they're no longer getting um, um shelter and you notice when they get booted out they often don't say where they came from you know, because because they're trying to be sensitive to China not wanting this image of having hosted all these guys and and women as well. And um, now Joe Lo is obviously the, the prize at the center of this, and he's the last piece of it. There's a lot of work going on to get him back to Malaysia, but there's there's a lot of things that could block that from happening. Obviously, Joe Lo knows a lot of stuff about a lot of people. It is actually more convenient to most powerful people connected to this that he doesn't talk in some way or another. And it's hard to control whether he talks once he goes to Malaysia, he's in prison or something like that. But on the other hand, Malaysia also wants all that money back that Joe Lo still controls. They and, and and China wants to have their Belt and Road Initiative deals restructured and functioning. So it's it's really a kind of push and pull at the moment. And it's not clear not clear what's going to happen, although things are happening all the time. Like this this woman, Jasmine uh, Liu, was one of the key figures in one of DB and she suddenly showed up in Malaysia and, and that's that's all because of this disintegration of Joe Lo's final stronghold. Yeah, I think that really speaks to some of the very recent developments. I mean, this this obviously saga has been going on for like well, for well over a decade. But, you know, in recent weeks, we've got just a lot of court cases going on. We've got uh, key associates of his were recently arrested, I think, in Malaysia. And I think you've spoken quite eloquently to why 
China may have protected low for so long and, and why Beijing may be less doing willing to do so now. I mean, I, I guess China has a lot to gain. I mean, I think giving up low would probably help to shore up a key relationship China has in the South China Sea, you know, can it position itself as a responsible actor, particularly after it brokered a pact between Saudi Arabia and Iran. I suppose it could also hope for some commercial wins in 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 Malaysia as well. I think uh, the new-ish Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim is, you know, I think he's considering opening Malaysia's 5G network up to China's telecoms equipment champion Huawei. Obviously, that would come at the expense of Ericsson. So there's and and there's, and there's I, I suppose there's scope to be to do more trade as there has been all along with China through this scandal. I, I mean, what does it really matter? if Malaysia gets Joe Lowe back or to all the actors, no pun intended, in this in this case? Why, why would it even matter? Well, I think it matters on a few levels. One of them would be, the most simplest would be return of money. And actually, ironically, it could mean, if, if Joe Lowe returns any kind of significant amount of money, it could mean that Malaysia not only recovers all of its money because Goldman had to pay this money, and that's a fine. That's not recovered money. And that's money that has to go to Malaysia. So. They could do okay financially in the end if they are able to recover some of Joe's money. There's also, you know, it's kind of, um, there's almost a truth and reconciliation aspect to this, that Malaysia's politics is so polluted and poisoned by this case in particular, and it's, it's led to a real polarization of the country. I think, you know, really having the truth, the full truth laid out, all the details, is, is, would be useful to cleaning that up to some extent, or at least begin the process of cleaning it up. And I think it's also kind of a symbolic thing too. Probably when uh, foreign companies come to Malaysia, they're going to walk in assuming this is the land of the billion-dollar whale. You know, like this is a place where, you know, we can't be sure of how things are done here. And if you can grab Joe, put him in through a justice process, it sort of proves that there's a kind of an end to this whole crazy story. And it might help Malaysia in a variety of ways. You know, from China's point of view, there's nothing that could be more important. Well, and there's other things more important, but there's there's few things could be as important as as rectifying this image of the Belt and Road Initiative. That what happened in Malaysia is so bad that it should turn off every country in the world from doing any Belt and Road Initiative deals. If they understood exactly how it was working, essentially, a prime minister was able to mortgage or sell the sovereignty of the country in exchange for backhanders. That that is just such a bad sign, you know. And I think they want to kind of cover this up. And that's that's why it's so sensitive. You, you you watch Malaysia, the prime minister will never mention China when it comes to 1MDB. They people show up and they don't say where they came from, you know, and um, and and they say, oh, he's in another country, but we don't know. We we can't say which, you know. It's all just the sensitivity is, is part of the negotiations. I mean, China has a huge incentive, obviously, right now, particularly to uh, shore up well the Belt and Road reputation as well. I mean, that's a one. Some people say it's like a one trillion dollar spend they've uh, made in you know, building infrastructure across the uh, whole Asian region to try and expand its influence. But so much of what they have spent has has been or lent to to uh, countries has sort of soured, and and they're really struggling with uh, that sort of debt pile now. A lot of countries are struggling to pay back, and we're seeing that sort of pop up everywhere from Sri Lanka to I think Zambia. But for China, I mean. It's also coming at a time where their reputation globally is is just really suffering. So I think, you know, having a win with Malaysia would probably be uh, quite a good step forward for them. I, I'm curious, though, how well do you think 
global authorities have done in terms of holding you know the primary people here accountable I, I mean Malaysia for example I think you said has and here we can talk about the numbers a bit but I, I thought Malaysia had now recovered quite a lot of money you know some six and a half billion dollars or I, they said Malaysia says it's 70 percent of their funds and assets uh, will they get the rest back and I think you implied that some of it may be in China. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, no matter what, it's really hard to count the true costs from Malaysia of a scandal like this. You know, all the missed opportunities that, that happened and things like that. It's, it's also a quite pernicious kind of fraud because even Malaysians don't really feel the pain of it the way that they would feel it if they had their, their savings stolen. If someone steals the money you have in your savings account, it hurts more than somebody stealing what's on your credit card. And you always, you always think of credit card money like, oh, that's not my problem. It's like somebody else's problem. But ultimately, it would be like somebody stealing from your credit card, but the credit card company refuses to honor the fact that it was a stolen thing. So you have to still pay that money back. You know, I, mean, I think global law enforcement did an incredible, amazing job at investigating the case. So, you know, the U.S. Department of Justice um, kleptocracy initiative and the international corruption squad that led this, they not only really nailed it, every all the details of how it all worked but they also managed to do some really interesting cooperative work with, with switzerland singapore and even malaysia so even while najib was the prime minister still malaysia managed the malaysian anti-corruption commission worked with the fbi under the radar so that was pretty amazing now when it comes to the the follow-through i think it's been relatively more unimpressive you know so even the goldman case i think it's pretty well agreed among people who worked on that case and, and the investigative side that they still kind of got off without a without a serious you know it was a serious obligation to them but they seemed to be doing fine they, it didn't really hurt them in a, in a serious way and they could sort of say oh it was a bad apple and they moved on but in reality it wasn't just a bad apple it was it was all the controls falling apart at the same time and, and it's pretty scary you know and then and then there's not a lot of bankers who've really suffered there's been a few in singapore that had to go to prison but there's not been that many cases like, you know, there's the the, the Petro Saudi guy, Tarek Obeid, you know, he's still living free in Switzerland. Um, there's a lot of cases like that. Yeah, I mean, I agree what you were saying about global authorities. Like initially, I remember I was in I was based in Hong Kong when this sort of all first kicked off. And it was just amazing at the time that how everybody came out guns are blazing, kind of acting together. I mean, as you say, the US, Switzerland and Singapore in some rough kind of order like that just kind of came out and and really tackled this problem in a way. Um, but I mean, yeah, as you say, if we take Goldman, like this was the bank that was most badly caught up in the mess. It raised six and a half billion dollars for one MDB through bond sales. They received six hundred million dollars in fees for its work. The bank did and its and its services. Um, but about four and a half billion dollars of that was misappropriated. And ultimately, its total payments in connection to settlements relating to 1MDB, Goldman ended up, you know, they 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 put the total at about $5 billion. And as you say, the bank says it was maybe a few bad actors. Um, I mean, if you run through them, I think Andrea Vella, who was a former co-head of investment banking in Asia, was permanently banned from the industry. That was a couple of years ago in, in 2020. Then there's a relatively low-level banker, Roger Ung, who was sentenced in March by a US court to 10 years in prison. But his ex-boss... Uh, Roger's ex-boss, Tim Leisner, who was Goldman's former chairman in Southeast Asia, he played a much bigger role and he is still out enjoying the high life. I mean, spotted recently in Beverly Hills when the VIPs were in town for the Milken conference. 
And is he working in Texas? I mean, what's he doing there? There's some, there's some chatter about that. I mean, I don't really get that. Uh, yeah, and, and not only that, but it might be that he doesn't have to serve any prison time. We haven't seen yet. They keep pushing the uh, sentencing because he pled guilty. He became a cooperator and he pled guilty. But there hasn't been a sentencing yet. And there is a world in which he, he's, that he's not given any prison time. So he really, well, and, and like you say, he's 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 running around uh, wearing all black at like fancy places, having lunch. It's unclear what he's up to exactly, but it, it doesn't seem very chastened by his experience, you know. Um, and uh, he probably won't be doing any getting any jobs in a bank anytime soon. But who knows what he could be up to? By the way, he was doing so many other things too. Uh, even after one MDB crisis, he tried to help Jolo buy a bank in Mauritius. He he was just so involved in this scandal and and he being bribes himself i mean if there's there's probably very few people that had such an involvement in the case probably it would go jolo then follow that would be ken leisner you know in terms of the involvement in the in the whole scandal so well, yeah he, i think he's due i mean last time i checked i think he's due to be sentenced in september but as you say i i, I don't know if that date has been pushed back or will be pushed back again and i think in fairness to goldman sachs so you know they weren't the only bank you know caught up in this there was ubs credit suisse dbs standard chartered united overseas bank they were all kind of penalized among those that were penalized by the singapore regulator they i think singapore regulator even took away a bank's license to operate and i think malaysia is still chasing a few others including deutsche bank and jp morgan through the courts and uh yeah i mean so like i don't know i mean in a world is is it possible that there's a world where jolo comes back and it gets worse for these financial institutions well if jolo comes back and, he, and he's able to or he's willing to or he's forced to in some way really speak about all the details of everything that happened i mean so many people could be in a lot worse shape i'm talking about everybody from the banks to celebrities Everybody, because there's so many people that had that he could say had some knowledge or awareness. There's so many people that received gifts that probably are below the radar still. And they, you know, there's lots of celebrities out there sitting on like hundred thousand dollar watches and diamonds and stuff that they nobody ever came asking. You know, he he probably has the list. And actually, I remember in our reporting, we even found that someone said that he would keep a list of every gift he gave because it was all for him. It was all transactional. You know, it was like. Oh, I gave that guy a hundred thousand dollar watch. He kind of owes me, so let's let's call in the favor, you know. And so I think he's him, him returning to Malaysia, going on a witness stand, is everyone's worst nightmare. Who had some benefit from this scandal? Right. So he's gonna if if he's given a chance, uh, he's gonna whip out his little black book and sing like a canary in a coal mine. Um, that is a scary thought. I, there are some other loose ends in this saga. I mean, what about Najib Razak? I mean, Malaysia's former prime minister, he's in prison, he's serving a 12-year sentence. I mean, it's still possible that Najib could win a pardon. I mean, what message would that send to the world? This is a story that's still creating daily headlines in Malaysia, which I just find extraordinary. I think if Najib is pardoned, just because some king or somebody wants to let him get out of prison, it would be a huge embarrassment. And also it would be very inconsistent. I mean, Anwar, the current prime minister, was in prison for a long time. Nobody pardoned him suddenly in his first year. Um, I think it would be just embarrassing and show that Malaysia doesn't care about justice or, or at least powerful people in Malaysia. On the other hand, uh, it doesn't seem like it's a, it's a guaranteed thing. The, the reason you read about it in the news so much is that it's obviously people are kind of weighing it up. 
okay, there is a, a group in, in Malaysia or a, a population that would like him to come out and he obviously still has a base, but freeing him without serving justice, especially if people like Jolo are showing up talking about it, it's, it's, it's going to have a huge blowback on whoever makes that decision. So I don't think anybody is feeling too excited about being the one to push for it, like, you know, from the higher levels. Um, but it's definitely something on the, it's always possible. I mean, in Malaysian politics, anything's possible. There's a little bit of it, it does kind of remind you a little bit of what's going on in America right now with Donald Trump. He's obviously being indicted for crimes. People are saying this is a political stitch up. It's sort of similar with Najib. They're saying, you know, Najib's a vi- the, the, the kind of standing explanation is Najib was a victim of Joe Lowe and he didn't do anything wrong. And, and people are going after him and saying he's the bad guy because of political reasons. So I think that's not going to go away. It's, it's always going to be a polarizing political thing in Malaysia. I, well, I think that's basically all the loose ends in this saga, right? I mean, or do you, or do you expect any kind of more twists and turns to come out of this? I think what, what I would say is that money has been missing for so long and it's been employed in ways which we can only guess and imagine. And the answer to that question of how the money got from essentially Singapore banks into China is really would be so fascinating. And what Jolo has been up to for the last five years, you know, we don't know the details of what he's been up to, except for the fact that he's 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 employed uh, an army of lawyers to try to fight for his case and, and, to, and to buy influence or do whatever he can do. Um, but I think there's still a huge missing, there's big missing uh, parts of this whole scandal. So there's a lot that could still come out. And um, I always, when I first started on 1MDB, I kept thinking there's no way it could be as bad as that. And then it was always worse. So now at this point, I'm always assuming, well, there must be some really bad things that I don't know about, you know? <laughs> the, you and probably everyone involved. Um, you know, I, this morning I watched uh, the trailer for a documentary, Man on the Run, and I spotted you in there. Uh, you know, that's about Joe Lowe. And I think that's due to come out in September. I think it includes the last interview with Najib before he was sent to jail. And much more exciting for me, perhaps, is that your book, Billion Dollar Whale, as you think you were referring to earlier, is being adapted for television. Is that going to be a series? And when will that be out? That's a series. Obviously, everything in Hollywood right now is a little bit slowed down because of the dual strikes. But it's a very mature, developed television series. It's it's quite far down the road of being written. And um, so it's, it's an exciting team, too. There's The, the showrunner is um, called Bo Willimon, who did House of Cards. And the, the head screenwriter is called David Henry Huang, who's really an amazing playwright and screenwriter. And then there's a whole team beyond him that are working on the, on the script. So we're extremely excited about that, but it might be might take a little bit of time because of all these strikes. Well, I cannot wait to watch it. Thank you so much, Bradley, for joining us. And I hope we get the chance to speak again soon. Thanks for tuning into The Exchange. This podcast was produced by Pranav Kiran in Bengaluru. You can find more episodes on Apple or your favourite podcast app. Also, check out our sister podcast, The Views Room. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. 
For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. Listener.